Well, good morning, and happy Father's Day to all of you. Uh, I had a breakfast in bed this morning for Father's Day, although I'd been up for a couple hours, so my kids made me go back to bed <laughs> so they could bring me breakfast. But that was it was still worth it. It was still worth it. I really appreciated the song that uh, Carrie and David just sang, Will You Be the One to Bring the Light in a Darkened World? Because this really is a dark world in which we live. And it seems at times as if it's like a flash flood coming down the canyon and the, and the darkness just seems to encroach upon us more and more and it gets darker and darker as we live. William Bennett writes, during the last 30-year period, there's been a 560% increase in violent crime, more than a 400% increase in illegitimate births, a quadrupling in divorce rates, a tripling of the percentage of children living in single-parent homes, more than a 200% increase in the teenage suicide rate, and a drop of almost 80 points in the SAT scores. Modern-day social pathologies, at least great parts of them, have gotten worse. So the question for all of us as Christians is, in this dark world in which we live, how should we live? How do we relate to a world that is so dark and seems to be getting darker all the time? Now, church history has offered us three different choices, at least. One of those is isolation. The world's dark, so we need to get in our little enclave as Christians and hide out from the world and all stick together. Now, some examples of that in history have been like the monks in their uh, monasteries or nuns in their convents and other experiments in history, Christian communes, and other uh, ideas like that, where we as Christians should isolate ourselves from the world because it is so dark out there. Another option church history has tried is the uh, option of what you might call confrontation. We need to point out where the world is wrong, and we need to try to conform the world to Christianity. We're right. The world needs to be like us. And so we will do what we can to conform them to us. An example of that was John Calvin, a wonderful reformer in the city of Geneva, when he and John Farrell took over the city, passed laws that everyone had to worship regularly, whether they were Christian or not, had to live by Christian principles, whether they were Christian or not, and uh, were required to live as Christians. Well, unfortunately, it failed miserably because non-Christians don't have the spirit. They can't live as believers. You can outwardly conform them in certain ways, but you can't get non-Christians to live like Christians because they don't have the life of Christ in them. Third option that church history has tried is that of assimilation. Well, if you can't beat them, then join them. And this has happened over and over again throughout history. An example was when the church became the state religion in the Roman Empire under Constantine, and at that point, instead of being a persecuted minority, they became the majority. And they began collecting huge amounts of money, wealth, buildings, land, and all kinds of things, and began to look just like the other institutions in society and lost any influence of really drawing people to Christ. Well, unfortunately, in America today, we have all three of these options being touted upon us. Some would say that we needed to isolate ourselves from the world. We need to get together as Christians and only shop Christian businesses and only 
uh, deal with Christians all the time, only deal with Christian schools. And I think Christian schools are great. I'm not putting them down. But there's this mentality of isolating ourselves so we never have to deal with the darkness. Another, another option that people try is that of confrontation. We need to make sure this is a Christian nation. That's what we were founded on. So let's make sure that America is a Christian nation and everybody conforms to what a Christian ought to be. The third option is that of assimilation. And unfortunately, as we look at churches today in America, too often they look just like other businesses. They have the same problems. The divorce rate is as high in the church as it is in society as a whole. And all of a sudden we've lost any sense of difference or, or power to impact the world for Jesus Christ. When we choose, I believe, any of these three options, really. So the question is, how do we be in the world but not of it, as Jesus put it? How do we have an impact on the world that will truly be like the lights shining in the darkness that we've been singing about? Well, Paul tells us, I believe, gives us some basic principles in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. And let me encourage you to really listen carefully and wrestle with this issue because it's an important one if we are to impact the world for Jesus Christ. It is a dark world, but how do we impact it? Paul is writing to the Ephesian Christians, and believe me, Ephesus was a dark, dark society. It was a place where temple prostitution happened all the time. Remember the big riot that happened because of the silversmiths there, because they're because uh, Paul was drawing people away from their religion and there was money everywhere and corruption everywhere. And in that setting, Paul writes this section of Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 14. Just a reminder of the overview of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, Paul said what we have in Christ, what he has done for us in granting us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he enumerates those. Then in chapter 4, he began telling us, Therefore, in light of all that God's done, how should we walk? And he first, in chapter 4, says how we should walk in the body with one another, truthing in love. Then the end of chapter 4, he says how we should walk in relation to our own flesh. What's it, what does it mean to be a new creation and to put off the old and put on the new? Now in chapter 5, he tells us how we are to walk in the world, in a dark world. And let me begin just with a principle that we'll come back to. And that is, I believe that we as Christians, when the world looks at us, should be intrigued by us. They should be attracted to us. They should not feel judged by us. Now they may. To some, we are fragranced from death to death, we're told in Second Corinthians. But by and large, there should be something about us that should attract us, attract them to us. So first, what, what Paul does in the first couple of verses is he tells us what we should do in dealing with the world. Then he tells us what we should not do, and then he tells us the result. So let's begin with what we should do in dealing with the world. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, Therefore, and the therefore ties us into verse 32 where it says, God, you should forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Because he's forgiven us, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children 
And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You can read all kinds of books on the Christian shelves dealing with the world and analyzing it and telling us what it's like and what the darkness is like. But notice where Paul starts. He says, don't focus on the world in dealing with the world. Focus on God. He says, imitate your father. Keep your eyes on him and follow him. Don't fall into the temptation of trying to focus on the world and evaluate and figure it all out and and be relevant and figure out the darkness all around you. He says, instead, focus on the Father. You see, we're all imitators by nature. We all tend to imitate those around us because we want to belong. We long to belong. We, we long to feel part of a group. And so uh, we imitate those around us. And if you, if you uh, want a great example of that, go on a junior high campus sometime. They're all trying to be different, and they're all the same being different, right? <laughs> they all wear the baggy sweatshirts and the long shorts that come way down to here. Or maybe their peer group's a little different, so they all they look just the same, and they copy the same kind of music, and, and they uh, uh, imitate the same commercials on TV that they all like. And, and, uh, but as adults, we do the same thing. We look around us, and we look at those who seem to be successful, and we imitate them. You see, we imitate those around us that we look at, that we focus on. And unfortunately, the church too often has imitated the world as well. One denomination that I was with for a number of years, um, I would continually receive their denominational newsletter, and it would be filled with marketing strategies that were taken out of secular books and business techniques and, and how to have the right image in your church so that more people will want to come because your, your image looks good. And, and uh, for me, I just looked at that and I thought, why are we copying the world? We're to be different. We're not to be like the world. Not that there aren't some good things to learn, but I was just appalled at, the, at how we tend to copy the world in what we do. The Dove Awards, I, I like Christian music. I like listening to it. I watch the Dove Awards. It looked to me just exactly like the Grammy Awards, the secular version, but, the, but they just put a different label on it and called it the Dove Awards because it's Christian music now. We tend to imitate the world around us instead of being significantly different than the world around us. I sat down one time with a a leader in one of the major denominations in our country, a liberal denomination, I might add, who sat down with me and he said, you know, the church has really blown it in dealing with the world. I said, how? He said, The church always follows on the heels of the world. We always are behind. We're following along and doing what the world does after it's already stepped ahead. He said, we should be leading the way. We should be leading the world into areas like accepting homosexuality and ordaining homosexuals and accepting all kinds of different uh, lifestyles. Well, I obviously don't agree with his last statement. But unfortunately, his analysis is pretty correct. The church seems to follow the world and imitate it like a child following his daddy too often. So Paul's encouragement to us is he said, dealing with the world, don't even look at it first. First, imitate your father. 
Imitate God. Look at him like a beloved child and do what he does. My son Jordan is four and a half. He's that wonderful age where he worships daddy. (laughs) This morning when they brought me breakfast in bed, they made me sausage. And so I'm eating it and he says, Dad, can I have a bite? And he ended up eating about half of it, you know, half of my sausage. And then when it was his turn to eat breakfast downstairs and, uh, and he was given sausage, he said, I don't like sausage. And we said, well, wait a minute. You just ate, ate dad's upstairs. And he said, well, no, but I, I like dad's, but I don't like this. <laughs> he, he's again at that stage where he looks and sees what I've put on for the day and then he tries to find something to match it. He... Uh, in his food, he looks and sees the other morning we were having breakfast and I was eating and, and mom said, what do you want for breakfast? And he had to climb up on the counter and look at what I had in my bowl. And he said, well, I want Cheerios. I want like dad. The other day he said, um, you know, when I grow up, I want to teach people about Jesus and be a hunter like daddy. <laughs> he especially likes the hunting part. You know, the idea of carrying a gun is pretty exciting to him. You know, that really moves my heart. That's a wonderful picture of how we can move God's heart by watching Him, everything He does, and doing what He does. That's all Paul's saying. Live your life in a way in which, like a beloved child, imitates Daddy. Watch the Father. Watch God. And do what He does. Make it your goal to live in the world in the darkness like the Father. And he gives us a good picture of that as he says, walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Your beloved children. You see, the way we are to walk in particular in the world is with love. We are to be imitating him in love. It says, Jesus loved you when you were utterly in darkness when you were blinded, when you were in rebellion against Him, when you were an enemy of Him, a sinner, and yet He died for you as a fragrant offering to God. He says, therefore, imitate that. Walk in love with the non-believers around you. Do they hurt you? Yes. Are they in darkness? Yes. Are they sinners? Yes. Are they enemies of God? Yes. So demonstrate His love to them that they might be drawn into the kingdom. Remember how Jesus walked on earth? How did the sinful world around him respond to him? Did they run away from him because they felt judged by him? They were drawn to him. He had to go up into the mountains to get away in the middle of the night just to pray, get a little quiet time, (laughs) because the crowds were always following him around. The sinners, the worldly people living in such darkness couldn't get enough of Jesus. Are you walking in love in a way that people can't get enough of the Jesus in you? Are they drawn to your light? Is there something about you that so intrigues them that they just want to be around you? You see, that's what God has called us to be. I think that's why Mother Teresa is such a phenomenon in the world because they have no idea what to do with her. People are always out for something for themselves. What do you do with a woman who gives up her life to pick up people who are dying on the streets of Calcutta, of diseases and all kinds of things, 
and takes them in, can't really gain a thing from them, just to give them a peaceful way to die. She gains nothing from it. And the world is amazed because the world doesn't function that way. The world's always out to get something. You see, as you live in a way in which you give and with not expecting anything in return to a dark world of enemies of God, they'll be drawn to him. So our focus should be on the Father, on Jesus, imitating him as we walk in the world. I love the little novel that's about published about a hundred years ago called In His Steps. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you. It's a novel by Charles Sheldon in which he describes a church where the pastor said, I challenge you as a congregation to do everything for a year asking the question, what would Jesus do? And then doing it. And the book is amazing in all the descriptions. Now, it's a novel, but it's wonderful reading in terms of being challenged to what does it mean to really look at, the, at our God and follow him, to do what he would do. So first, Paul says, in relating to the world, imitate the Father. Do what he does. Watch him closely and do what he does. Secondly, he says, don't imitate the world. Do imitate the Father and don't imitate the world. And that's in verses 3 through 12. And he gives us three warnings about how we are not to imitate the world. The first one comes in verses uh, 3 through 6. So let me read those to you. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know a certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says, don't imitate the world, first of all, in... He says, don't do what they do. Don't do what they do. He describes here the spirit of the world, really. He says, don't let immorality, sexual immorality, that's a word with sexual connotations, um, or impurity which is the idea of filthiness, of pollution. It's the idea of, you know, when you stand around the water cooler at work and everybody's complaining about the boss and you chime in and, and, you, and you complain about everything and criticize everything. It's that idea of filthiness. It's that idea of polluting your talk. He says, don't do that. Don't let it even be named among you. Or greed. See, the spirit of the world is one of not just trying to find some sexual titillation or complaining about everything and polluting everything, but it's also one of greed and materialism. All these, I think, really reflect that in the world, people are longing for something to fill their hearts. They're longing for some sense of passion, some sense of life. They're driven to fill that vacuum in their hearts that is meant to be filled by God alone. And they do it looking in these particular areas, things, greed, or sexuality, because that's a great corruption of of true life in Christ. Um, Sex in its right context is wonderful, 
but perverted sexuality is not, of course. And then um, turning to these wrong things to fill what's, what's in our hearts is what the world does. And of course, advertisers have picked up on this, right? These are the things they appeal to. They sell everything from cars to toothpaste to whatever through sexual connotations, sexual innuendos, or some sense that this is where life comes from. You can belong. You can be part of the group. You can have life if you drink the right beer. This is where real fellowship happens. They never show you the the loneliness that happens in those bars, the death that's all around, the darkness. They try to get you to buy their product thinking that that will give you life. You see, advertisers know that people are looking for life, trying to fill the vacuum of their hearts. But instead of doing that, Paul says, don't let those things even be named among you. He says, instead, at the end of verse 4, these things are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You see, as Christians, what makes us stand out from the world is that we, though we struggle and we suffer like the world does around us and we live in difficulty and life is hard, yet we give thanks because we know that God is working out a plan, that God is changing us, that he is with us in the midst of the struggle. So we don't have to stand around the water cooler and complain all the time about the boss and the business and everything that's going on. We instead can give thanks trusting that God is at work in everything around us. And when we do that, the world is stunned. They're amazed. They do not know how to respond to you because you are different from them. You're light in the midst of the darkness. You've heard David Roper at times talk about a friend of his named John Landreth, a very dear friend of his who uh, I visited a couple weeks before he passed away. And in those last Two years of his life, John lost his job for standing up as a Christian at a high-powered job, Silicon Valley. John lost his wife because she left him and his family because they went with mom. He lost his health when he got cancer. And two weeks after I met him for the first time, he died. But when I went and spent time with him, He had such an attitude of thanks to God for all that he'd given. Where does that come from? It comes from one who has his eyes on the Father, who is watching God and imitating what he does, who sees God at work and has a trust and a gratitude about life in the midst of life. That's a marvelous thing. Tremendous suffering this last week in the Scott family as they lost Larry Scott. Very painful. But as I watched the family, I was amazed at their thankfulness for his life and how God had used him and continues uh, to use the memories of him. That's a gift from God, and that stands out in contrast to the world that has no way to handle the sufferings of life. So Paul says, don't do what the world does. Instead, live with gratitude. He said, why would you ever want to join in anyway with the world? Verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. These are the things that have made God angry. Why would we as beloved children want to dishonor and, and uh, go against our, our Father's will? He's loved us. He's redeemed us. 
So let's live with gratitude, not doing what the world does. He says, first of all, then, don't do what the world does. And secondly, verses 7 through 10, he tells us, don't join in with their group. Don't be part of the group. Let me read those verses. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You see, Paul recognizes that all of us want to belong somewhere. We all want to belong to a group, to somebody that we feel like we can be part of. Uh, most of us do a lot of what we do, a lot of the choices we make, so we won't be different, so we will somewhere belong. But Paul says, don't try to belong to those in the world. Don't be partakers with them. There's tremendous pressure because we don't want to be left out. But I, I look back on my first time I drank alcohol as a teenager. I look back and why did I do that? It's because I didn't want to be left out. It's because I wanted to be part of the group. They were saying, hey, come be part of us. Come join in. We're all doing it. See, so much of what we do, sometimes even as Christians, is because we just don't want to feel left out. We don't want to be different. So we'll join in the criticism because everybody else is doing it and we don't want to feel left out. We'll join in the behavior because we don't want to be left out. It's a powerful drive in us to want to belong. And I, I'm afraid that often the choices we make as a church in how we respond to the world are because deep down we really don't like being different from the world. So we choose isolation. We all go in our little Christian groups and our Christian communities and spend all our time there and never have contact with the world because it's more comfortable. We can feel like we can belong and don't have to deal with a place where we're aliens and strangers and we don't belong. Or we confront the world and say, we've got to pass these laws and make sure everybody lives like a Christian because we can't stand the fact that all the world is living like the darkness they are, and we have to be so different if we're going to live in the light. Or we just kind of become like the world and assimilate, and we don't want to be too different, so we live our lives at work for years sometimes, and people don't even know we're a believer because we're so afraid of being different. We assimilate with the world. We take on the business techniques of the world. And what Paul says is, no, don't join with them. Why? Because you were formerly darkness. You used to be one of them, but now you are light. He doesn't say you are in the light. You are light. You are a new creation, see? You are different. You belong to someone else now. So he says, how foolish to go back to the way you used to be and live that way. It's like a butterfly who's come out of the cocoon that decides he's going to crawl around with the caterpillars because he really doesn't want to be different. That, that's too uncomfortable. How foolish. Well, that's what Paul's telling us. He says, you were darkness, but now you're light. So walk as children of the light. Children of the light. In other words, trying to please your father, he says, verse 10. Trying to learn what's pleasing to him. He's your father. He's your light. He's your Lord. So walk with him. Seek to please him. You see, if we do that, 
we will be in sharp contrast with the world around us because the world is always trying to belong to the group, always trying to fit in somewhere and be okay. But when you are seeking to please your Heavenly Father to live in the light that you are, you stand out from the world and they are amazed by that. A friend of mine named John was uh, had a job at Ford Aerospace in Silicon Valley. Did a great job there. They thought he'd done wonderful work and they offered him a promotion. Well, he thought about it, prayed about it, turned it down. And they came to him and they said, John, why did you turn this down? There's more money, more prestige, more power, all the things that people want. Why would you turn it down? He said, well, I prayed about it and I felt like God didn't want me to do it. He wanted me to make sure I had plenty of time with my family. He wanted me to uh, use my time for ministry and other things. And I just know the management would be a lot higher pressured for me. Well, he ended up turning down over the years four promotions like that. And every time they came to him and said, what's going on? Why are you turning this down? When things blew up in his division, who do you think they turned to to work things out? John. Because they knew there was something different about him. He had his life together in a way that the world couldn't understand, but they knew that he could deal with the problems that were going on at work. Not because that was his position, but because he was a light in the midst of the darkness, trying to please his father, not follow the crowd. So don't do what they do. Don't join in their group. And then thirdly, he says, don't take on their lifestyle. He says what that is in verses uh, 11 and 12. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. You see, what the world does is it tries to look good on the outside, but inwardly there's all the secret, shameful things that the world hides. People's lives are full of secret affairs, secret fantasies, secret thoughts that they hide. And there's this sham on the outside, but inwardly there's darkness. And what Paul says is he says, don't live that kind of lifestyle. You see, you are now light in the Lord. Come out and live in the light. Instead of being part of that hidden secretiveness, Christians should have an integrity about them where what they are on the outside is what they are in the inside. Now, what this means is the church ought to be a place where we can all struggle together. You see, we are struggling. We're not all together on the outside. We can pretend it, but we're not. We're not all together on the inside. We can be people of integrity that can admit our struggles and grow together and repent together and help one another walk in the light as he is in the light. You see, that's what God wants for us. Instead of walking in their lifestyle in secretness, he says, even expose the deeds of darkness. What does he mean here? Because some have taken this to mean, yeah, that's what we do. We go around and point out how the world's wrong and everything they're doing. You're doing this. That's wrong. You're doing this. That's wrong. This is wrong. You shouldn't do that. 
No, in the context, what he's talking about, exposing them, is simply when you live as a light, it lights up everything around. It makes everything visible. When I was in Israel about a year ago, I walked into this Israeli stone house, an ancient house, and it was pitch black. And our guide lit a little oil lamp, just a tiny flame, and, that, and set it on the lampstand. And that light reflected off the walls and lit up the whole house. That's what we're to be. You see, if we will do that, then it lights up the world around us and we stand in contrast and the world is amazed and stunned when they begin to see the reality that our lives show. Pascal wrote, When everything is moving at once, nothing appears to be moving, as on board ship. When everyone is moving toward depravity, no one seems to be moving, but if someone stops, he shows up the others who are rushing on by acting as a fixed point. God wants us to be fixed points that in contrast to the world, we don't imitate the world, we stand out in contrast because we live trying to see what the Father's doing and doing it, trying to imitate Him, living by gratitude, trying to please Him in what we do, and that's so different from the world that they're stunned and amazed and drawn to us and to the Father by the way we live. You see, if we feel like we have to be relevant and uh, know what the world's doing, and we have to watch all the movies and listen to all the music, and because how are we going to be relevant? What ends up happening is that influences us, and we become more like the world around us, and our light gets dim, and rather than being a light in the midst of the darkness, it's just like we're in the dusk, and if you try to walk around at dusk, when it's just almost pitch black but not quite, you can't see much. It's hard to see or walk or anything. You can't see. But if we will stand up, follow our Father and do what He does, even if that means we're totally different from those around us, and it means that the world is shocked by us and persecutes us, you see, then we have an impact on the world. Our greatest impact comes from following the Father not from trying to witness or do all the right things. Witnessing is good. But it's from who we are as lights in the midst of the darkness. When I was had just finished seminary and I uh, got a job for a while, looking, I was looking for a ministry. I got a job working in an antique shop in the Bay Area, rebuilding antique furniture. My boss was a pretty mean guy and uh, didn't treat any of us very well. And I began to be really angry and resentful. I mean, after all, here I was, a seminary graduate. I'm a good guy. Why don't you trust me? Why, why are you treating me this way? So I began to join in with all the other employees, doing what they were doing, complaining about the boss. I was just one of the gang. I joined in. Well, it was a miserable several months. But God kept me there. And then he began to speak to my heart and say, Hey, I'm here. This is not how I would respond. You're to love this man. Yeah, but he's an enemy of your... No, you're to love this man. Yeah, but look how he's treating... Yeah, you are to love this 
man. So God began to work in my heart and began to show me that I needed to have a different attitude and I began to treat him differently. And I'd say, Lord, I don't know how to love this guy. He's so hard. And I would just try to follow and step out. Well, within a few weeks of that time when God began to change my heart, not only was he beginning to trust me, he put me as the foreman of the whole shop. Within a couple weeks, we began a friendship. And then when I finally left there, just a few months later, I did a wedding of one of the other co-workers in the shop. And my boss came to the wedding. And I had the opportunity to share the gospel with him. You see, it made a difference because when I was willing to be a light, God could use me. God wants to use all of us in that way. Paul ends this passage, verse 13 and 14, by showing us what the results will be if we will walk in the light as children of light. All these, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now this last little three lines of poetry, scholars aren't sure where this comes from. could be an early Christian hymn. or I think Paul is drawn from several passages in the book of Isaiah where it describes how Israel was to wake up because God was delivering them from their sin. And they were to follow him, begin to walk with him, and he would shine the light on him. And Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, is a beautiful passage that describes that when the light of God, the glory of God, shines on us, then all the nations are drawn to us. And he says, we are the new Israel. We are to be the ones that are drawing people unto us as we live as the lights of the world. So he says the results of imitating God and refusing to imitate the world are, first of all, we show the world for what it really is. We expose it. Reality is seen simply by being around us in the midst of the darkness. Secondly, Christ will shine on you, he says. You'll have his life reflecting off of you. You'll have his blessing, but also he will reflect his life to others in a beautiful way, beautiful picture. And then finally, you will attract others into his kingdom. People will be intrigued by who you are in a way that will cause them to ask, What is it about you? Tell me about this God. They'll be drawn into his kingdom. Dr. Larry Crabb writes this. The greatest need of our day, the great need of our day, will not be met by training more counselors. It will not be met by leaders calling us to join the fight against moral pollution in our society. The greatest need in our world today is simply this. Godly men and women who possess and display a quality of life that reflects the character of God and that provokes curiosity in others about how they too can know God well. And David Roper in his latest book, Seeing Through, a couple of quotes from that, he says, Whenever we set out to redress any evil in society, we've got to display the Spirit of Christ. When I see Christians screaming at non-Christians, I just cringe. That's not the way it's done. 
It's not our task to root out evil men and women, writes Roper. Our job is to overwhelm them with love. Feed them. Give them something to drink and save them if we can. You see, what a privilege we have. We're not here just to survive until heaven. We're here to be lights that draw people to want to know God because of what they see in you. Let's live out this privilege. Let's imitate the Father. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you've chosen us to be the lights that would draw people to you. Lord, we're weak and we struggle, but help us not to imitate the world. Help us to stand out and imitate you, to keep our eyes on you and do as we see you doing. Use us, Lord, to impact our dark world for you. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.